to define something means that you simply explain its meaning. And many of us from, fourth, from about fourth grade up through graduate school have spent a lot of times defining things, explaining something's meaning or what the essence of it is. Now, to redefine something means that you are resetting the meaning or the nature of something. And to redefine something uh, can be dangerous. In our world today, we are trying to redefine marriage and redefine morality, a different sermon for a different day. But you can't really redefine principles. In fact, when you redefine something, you better be in the right type of position and you better have a good head on your shoulders before you start doing that. But if anyone can redefine what something means, that's Jesus Christ. And in Mark chapter 9 and 10 today, we're going to be in chapter 9 and 10, Jesus Christ radically redefines greatness. Jesus radically changes what you and I and how the world has defined the essence and the meaning of greatness, radically redefines it. Now, before we look at what Jesus says, I think we, we have to start here. We have, we have our own human understanding of what greatness is. We have our own grasp, our own definitions, our own meaning of what greatness is. And by the way, what you probably think greatness is, and I think it is for 2,000 years at least, and I bet it goes back a lot farther than that, People have been struggling with the same things. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, it says, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? Now, here's something to keep in mind. You never keep a secret from Jesus, do you? You never talk behind Jesus' back, do you? They found this out the hard way and over and over again. But they kept quiet because on the way, they argued about who was the greatest. Now, I want to show you on a little map where they were. In, they were in Capernaum. Capernaum is right here. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus grew up here in Nazareth. Remember, in Jesus' day, the Holy Lands was divided in three sections. Galilee was the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea here in the south that you can't see. Jesus' kind of adopted hometown was there, was Capernaum. Apparently, it was Peter and Andrew's hometown. And this may have been Peter and Andrew's house that they were in. But as they traveled, they argued. They didn't just talk about it. They didn't discuss it. They literally got into an argument about who was the greatest. And that was the greatest. It means who is the mightiest among us? Who is the highest? Who is the big dog among us? the 12 disciples. Now, not was that disappointing for multiple reasons already for Jesus, but here's what had just happened. Jesus had just got finished talking to them about his death that was coming and about everything that was going to mean. Peter, James, and John had just gone on a mountain with Jesus a short time before this. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And the voice of God the Father had boomed out. Moses and Elijah showed up on the mountain, and it's after this experience that they are bickering and arguing among themselves who is the most important in our group. And you and I know 2,000 years later, 
That's often how we define greatness too. But it doesn't end here. It just continues in chapter 10, verse 35 through 41. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. How many of you ever pray like that? God, will you do for me whatever I'm fixing to ask you to do? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said, you will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And in verse 41, when the other ten disciples heard this, they were excited for Peter and John, or James and John. They were thrilled that they were wanting to know who was going to get to sit at the right left. No, it says they were indignant. They were, they were furious that James and John had asked this. Now, it's interesting. In Matthew 20, when this same story is told, it, apparently James and John's mommy was there too, and she was part of the asking Jesus process. They just had this experience in Mark 9... They had been with Jesus three years. Now, here's two of the probably of the three closest friends of Jesus, and here's what they're asking. Listen, when we all die and go to heaven, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? In the ancient world, that was the highest place you could sit next to the king, to his right or to the left. And obviously, in heaven, that would be the greatest place to sit. And here are these guys who had lived, walked, and touched Jesus for three years, and they still say, you are great if you have honor, if you have power, if you have prestige and glory, if you've got the right position. And you know 2,000 years later, it hasn't changed, has it? We look and we say, you know, I want to teach. I want on that committee. I want to be at this in the community or this at work so people will hear me, listen to me, and I will be somebody. Nothing wrong with being a leader, but we think greatness is found in power and position, and it never is. Almost everybody in here knows who Saddam Hussein was. Saddam Hussein was the the very mean, wicked leader of Iraq for many years. He was called the, the butcher of Baghdad because he killed so many people. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of people he killed. And historians have grappled with what drove Saddam Hussein. And here's what those closest to him said. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about toys. It was about power and prestige, and I'm going to be the big dog. In fact, Saddam Hussein wrote a biography, had a biography written about himself. It was 19 volumes long. How many of you have read those? I've read 1 through 11. They're really good. I'm teasing can you imagine? And if you worked for the Iraqi government, you had to read those and were probably tested on that. People who knew him close said that what drove him is he wanted to be the greatest and he wanted to be the big dog. I heard someone say years ago, and I believe it's true, the root problem of discourse in every family and every church always comes back to the struggle are on, on who's going to get their way and who's going to get the glory. You see, we have an idea of greatness 
But Jesus is fixing to turn it completely upside down. See, Jesus tells us two things in these passages, and here's the second about this. Jesus says greatness begins and continues with deep humility. You say this morning you want to be great. You know, Jesus did not rebuke these guys for wanting to be great. Jesus didn't say because you want to be great, you're terrible and you're going to burn in hell forever. He didn't say that. He just told them, you guys, what you think greatness is, is not what true greatness is. Greatness is not about power and position and and everybody looking at you and you getting all the attention. That's not what greatness is. Greatness begins and it continues When we are deeply humble people, Matthew 18 is a sister passage to this Luke 9. And in Matthew 18, it says he called a little child and he had the child stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, I'm going to explain that more in a moment, you will never go to heaven someday. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. It begins with humility. Now, in Mark chapter 9, verse 35 through 37, it says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve, and he said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a child, and he had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms. Some people say this may have been... Peter's kid here, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. In verse 35, when he said the greatest will be last, it's interesting, the word last, it means the lowest in order. It it means at the back or the end of the line. And what did he mean when Jesus took this child and he told him, he told him how they received the child and dealt with the child and being like a child was super important, not only to get into heaven, but to being great. And, you know, I haven't understood that very well through the years. But let me shed some light on this subject to you. In Jesus' day, a child had no status. A child had no power. Child had no rights. In our world, today we've almost flipped that upside down where the kid is the CEO and the parents are under the kid. And in, in their day and age, it was way upside down the other way. The child had no status, no rights. A child, in fact, was considered property of their daddy, property of their daddy. As any child under a certain age is, a child is totally dependent. And Jesus is telling them, I want you to become like a child. The Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day classified children with slaves and people who were severely handicapped. And yet Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, quit trying to step on other people. Quit trying to always be heard when maybe you need to listen. Quit trying to be the big dog when you need to be in the pack helping out the rest of the dogs. Quit trying to push your way to the front of the line, but go to the back of the line and let other people go in front of you. Assume the role of the child in a society where a child had no rights and no status. Jesus isn't telling us to be a doormat. What Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in God's eyes and ultimately great here on this earth, it begins and it continues with deep humility. Now, that's upside down, isn't it? 
That's completely backwards. And I want to tell you something else that's very important too. Jesus tells us to humble ourselves. In James 4.10 in the New Testament, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I love something Billy Graham said. Billy Graham said, you do not want God to humble you. Do you agree with that statement? Don't pray, God, humble me. Because if you do, then I will need to come see you probably in the hospital or some ward somewhere this week. It's right to, certainly to pray, God, help me to be humble. God, help me to do the things in my life I need to be humble. But the Bible says choose to be humble. Don't, don't let God humble you. It's not what you want. Choose this route. And, you know, in America, and probably in America in the South, a lot of places in America, humility is hard to do. You know why? Because we have good things. We have good cars, a lot of us. We have good homes. We have good educations. We have good jobs. We have nice clothes. We smell good, most of us. And all that's fine. But a lot of those things, if you're not careful, can cause you and I to elevate ourselves to a position that we shouldn't be in. How do you humble yourselves? I think it begins with a couple of things. One, you acknowledge that you are a sinner. In other words, you acknowledge regularly and daily that you're not perfect. Everyone in this room, whether you acknowledge it or not, you're a saved sinner or a lost sinner, but you're a sinner. Here's the second thing. You acknowledge that you are a creature and God is the creator. You are part of creation and God is the creator. How do you stay humble? Acknowledge your sinfulness. Acknowledge that God is the creator and you're a You're a wonderful part of that creation, but that's exactly what you and I are. Here's the second or third thing of this. You're not the end all for everything in life. And by the way, I'm not either. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is I think some people think knowledge and and everything begins and ends with them. You know, I love the Internet. I love the Internet. And I see its flaws. I see its flaws that you can get in trouble on the social Internet. You can get in trouble looking at things you shouldn't look at. But the Internet has opened up. Basically, you can sit and have a library in your lap. But I'm afraid another thing the Internet's done is it's created false pride, a false sense of arrogance about us that shouldn't be there. How many of you have ever looked at a medical site on the Internet? WebMD, you ever looked at, have you ever looked at that? I want to tell you something I think it's real important. You know, you can look on WebMD, but that doesn't mean you're going to know more about kidneys than Dr. Tanner. Amen, Bill? And you can look on the Internet and you can study about science or you can study about religion or you can study about this and that, but you know what? That doesn't mean you know more about it than the experts do. We live in a day where we're blessed with so much that we have to be super cautious just because we have a Ph.D. or an an M.D. or a master's degree or whatever it is that we have that we think that we've got all the answers. And then God says that is exactly what's going to mess you up in life. God says choose to humble yourself. Greatness can never be found in your life without humility. Let me say this. I certainly don't know what goes on in 90% of your homes 
But if you're an arrogant husband or an arrogant wife, you are not someone that is enjoyable day in and day out to live with. If you have arrogant children, they need to be spanked. Well, they're 30. Spank them anyway. (laughs) You have arrogant parents and they're 80 and you're 50. Spank your parents. (laughs) Nursing home may never let you come back, but do it anyway. You know, think about church. Why did you come today? Why, Why did you come today? And I've always said, I don't care why anybody comes. I'm just glad that people come. But, but let me ask you a few things. Did you come to get your cup filled or to poke holes in other people's cups? Did you go to a Bible study class this morning? Did you come and hear the music and even the preaching? Did you come? Did you come so you could take it in and be different? Or did you come to create critique and criticize those who are giving it out. Humility. Humility begins when we see our need for God and then we see that everybody in this world is equal to us. It's humble before God and others. Jesus said greatness begins and it continues with deep humility. Here's the second thing Jesus laid out with this. Jesus said, greatness is seen in servanthood. You see, we say that you're great if you got a lot of servants. We say you're great if you got all the answers. We say that you're great if everyone's waiting on you and you're telling everyone else what to do. And Jesus flips that completely and he says, you're great if you're humble before God and others. And you're great if you serve God in others. In chapter 9, verse 35 through 37, again, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and a servant of all. That word servant means a deacon or a minister to all. He took the child and he had him stand among them, taking them in his arms. Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but also the Father who sent me. And Jesus' day to welcome someone meant to receive them. It meant to take them in. It meant that you were going to take care of and tend to that person. And taking in the child again, you were receiving or taking in someone who couldn't do anything back for you. You were taking in someone of low status in that society. You were tended to or caring for someone who was considered insignificant, if you can believe it, in the world that day. And Jesus continued in Mark 10, verse 42 through 45. He called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. High officials exercise their power. Not so with you. Anyone who wants to be great, who wants to be the chief, must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For Jesus said, even I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Jesus said, if you want to be the chief, that you will ultimately become the slave. Now, Jesus' day, in the Roman Empire, it's estimated there were 60 million slaves. Now, slavery then was not like we think about it in the 1800s here 
Because you would have medical doctors. You would have legal professionals who were slaves. But still to be a slave meant you were a piece of property. It meant that you were owned and, and possessed by someone else. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying sell yourself and become a slave. But what he's saying, you want to be great. You really want to be great. You choose the position to be the server instead of the one being waited on hand and foot. You choose the position in life where you're giving instead of constantly expecting that everyone should give and do for you. What a radical, unbelievably radical concept. You know, and it's easy to some degree to cater to people you consider wealthy and important. Because you think in the back of your mind, when they die, they will remember me and I will get $20 million in, uh, in their will. So it's easy to do for the important. Here's a weird thing I've noticed. Some people, some people can, can actually serve and care for people who are on the lowest end of the scale. But you know where real servanthood probably is lacking the most in this room today? And that's among our equals. Absolutely, we should serve those above us. Absolutely, we should serve those below us. But I think sometimes we look at someone in our Bible study class or we even look at our husband or wife and we're still thinking about what they should do for us, not what we should do for them. We look at them as competition instead of people we should serve and care for. Jesus said, if you really want to be great, you really want to give your husband or wife a small heart attack, start serving them. You want to blow your kids away, start being a servant towards them. That doesn't mean you you lose your leadership in their life. That means you put them first above yourself. There was a story that made the news this week. You may be familiar with a guy named Cameron Lyle. Cameron Lyle is a senior at the University of New Hampshire. He's a shot putter. You know, takes a... 16-pound cannonball, and throws it as far as he can. He puts the shot. Senior year, big year, excited about his finishing out, hoping to have a great senior spring track. The big time of the sport is in the spring. A couple of years earlier, they were having a drive for bone marrow transplants where you could get your mouth swabbed and go on a national registry for bone, to be a bone marrow donor. He did it two years earlier. Well, this spring, right as track season is taken off, he gets a call. Cameron, you're a match for somebody. This person is seriously ill. Can it wait until track season's over? No, they will be dead if they don't get this before track season is over. Okay? couple of ways you give bone marrow. The way they were going to have to get it to him from him was to drill in his hip. And they told him, you will be out for a month. For at least a month, you cannot lift anything heavier than 20 pounds. That would include throwing a 16-pound shot put around. So here's your choice. Give your career-ending best season up for a complete stranger or go ahead and finish your track season, and nobody's going to probably think any worse of you because, hey, this is your last year, chance to have some glory, some prestige. You know what he did? He gave the bone marrow. 
when he was in the hospital, he was asked, you know, was it tough to give up your bone marrow? Was it tough to give up uh, your senior season? Was it tough to give up what you thought was going to be a great spring and your final year in track? And he said, certainly it was tough. But if I got the call tomorrow and had to do it all over again, I would do it all over again. You see, a servant, it's, it's nothing magical. It's nothing mystical. You don't have to walk around with a towel, you know, and then grab some cowboy and pull his boots off and start washing his feet in the mall or something weird like that. It just means you put other people first. It means you're willing to do the jobs other people aren't willing to do. Can teaching and preaching and singing and leading be service? Absolutely they should be service. It's about your heart. You can go to a restaurant. You can go to places where they have people who are in the service industry who aren't servants. Amen? It's about your heart. You can be the president of the company and be be a bigger servant than anybody else in the company. It's about your heart. You can't be a servant without humility. There's no way you're going to be a servant without humility. Unless you're willing to put yourself under God and others, you're always going to be arrogant and difficult, and it's always going to be about you. But when you put yourself under God and others, and you say, you know what, I'm going to go through life seeing how I can make the team, the cause, and other people better, you are hitting a service home run. And who cares at that point what anybody else says? Jesus says, when you and I go through life with that philosophy, We are truly great. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, this is supposed to be you. I've heard people say, well, my gift is not serving. When Jesus said this is who he was and that we should be, it's not about gifts. It's about heart. Maybe your heart needs some work this morning. You need some arteries reopened. But I want to tell you the truth. If arrogance and a lack of service is the dominant way of your life, you don't need your heart cleaned. You need a new heart. You need a transplant. You need Jesus to save you and change you because everything I talked about this morning is not just something Jesus thought was cool. It was stuff that Jesus lived his life by. I want to ask you today, those closest to you, Would they say you're humble? Would they say you have a servant's heart? And I ask you to check yourself right now. Let's pray. This morning, if you are a believer, how are you doing in these areas? Honestly, how are you doing? And will you, will you make things right with God? Will you repent where you need to repent? Will you make the corrections? Maybe today you're here and you're not a Christian or you're unsure if you're a Christian. I want to ask you this morning, where you're seated, will you give your life to Jesus? Just pray and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to turn from my sins. I believe you're God's son. 
I believe that you died and arose for me. And Jesus, come into my heart this morning. Today, I'm giving you my life. Let me have your attention just for a moment. Just a second, we're going to stand. We're just going to bow our heads this morning. We're going to let the the instruments play. Justin may sing. I'm just going to ask you to stand and bow your heads and to respond to what God said to your heart today. Maybe you just ask Christ into your heart. Or maybe you're ready to do that. When we give the invitation, will you stand? Will you come? Will you do business with God? We'll be down here waiting to help you. Maybe this morning you're ready to join our church family. We would love for you to do that. And One way you can do that is just come down, talk to one of our ministers. We'll help you do that today. Maybe this morning, as a Christian, where you're standing or at the altar, you need to repent. And you need to say to God, God, I want to repent of my pride and my arrogance. And God, whether I'm here another five years or 50, I want to be humble and I want to serve God. Let's stand. Just bow your heads. The altar's open. We're waiting on you. Step out and respond this morning.